This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms podcast sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford here with my co-host, Mark Sinell. Hi, Mark. Hi, Carolyn. Good morning. Good morning. So today, our guest is actually an old friend, Richard Ford, who is Chief Technology Officer at Praetorian. And for over 25 years, Richard has been able to design and implement next-gen product strategies and provide customers with the best threat detection available. Today, we're going to talk to Richard about the cyber threat landscape and what a good defense looks like. Welcome to Tech Transforms, Richard. Hi, it's nice to be back on a on a call with you, Caroline. And Mark, it's it's good to see you. So yeah, awesome to, to see you here. too. Yeah, really good to have you today. So I let's just jump right in. Um, let's I want to know what your view is. What are what are our biggest cybersecurity threats? What does the cybersecurity threat landscape look like? And how do we defend ourselves from it? So there's like Three-part question there. Okay, so so we're starting with an easy question, right? But or maybe not. Kind of a hard <laughs> question. Um, I think I think the threat landscape is incredibly messy, and I think that the most important part to think about is change. So if you think about just the last, you know, quarter or two that we've gone through, you had log for shell. Suddenly we're all running around looking for log for J vulnerabilities. And then it's spring for shell, which wasn't as serious, but was still pretty nasty if you were impacted. The problem, we have this tremendous rate of change. So the thing that was important to you yesterday may not be the thing that's important to you today, and it's unlikely to be the thing that's most important for you tomorrow. So when we think about the threat landscape, the first thing to say is, you know, if I give you an answer, it's like looking at a single still image from a movie and claiming you've watched the movie. Right. That as soon as we go click, you know, that that threat landscape will change. With that said, I do think there are some common themes that keep coming back. Right. So there's there's a, a, a threat we have around being desperately short of people. There's a threat around we don't know what assets we have. And even if we did know what assets we have, we don't know what they're running. And then um the business conditions are driving us forward so quickly that it's difficult to keep security on the front burner. It sometimes drops to the back burner. So we don't think about, about security as much perhaps as how do I meet these business objectives that we have? And I think this has created this sort of very unpleasant, perfect storm that will keep us well on our toes, I don't know, for the next couple of decades, it feels like. <laughs> So when you say that we always have to, we're, we're constantly moving forward, changing. At the same time, I mean, are we still dealing with like solar winds? So as we're having to look to the future, we're still dealing with all the shit that's happened even a year, two years ago. Is that true? Or like, are we good? We took care of it. No, it's it's definitely correct, right? So. So all vulnerabilities never really go away. So you have all those things sort of trailing behind you, like a comet has a tail, uh, you know, and new stuff coming at you. 
And I think to be a successful CISO or to operate the business successfully, what you need to be really good at is prioritization. So it's about dealing with what is the biggest risk for you right now. And I think that leads us to a very important point that we talk about the cyber threat landscape, but it's different depending on who you are and what you do. So the biggest risk, for example, for government might be very different than critical infrastructure, might be very different for a sort of mom and pop SME that's sort of operating the corner store. And the, each one of these has a different threat landscape that they live in, different risks and different risks to the business. So, I and not only that, but yes, this is all additive. So we still see scans for, you know, all vulnerabilities as we, as we look at our threat intel. I remember going back a few years, there were viruses that used to trigger on, on certain days of the month or certain, certain months of the year. And for years afterwards, you would see these viruses fire up and start scanning things like it, you know, which means that there were still people out there who were still infected, which is just stunning to me. Ah, the good old days when we knew the day that it was going to happen, the day of the month it was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. I still still remember the old Michelangelo virus, right? (laughs) Where it was like a trigger day was coming and Everyone was counting down to what would happen on Michelangelo Day, but I guess that just shows my my age, or perhaps the more positive spin is my longevity in, in the industry. Your that's experience. going back a long time. Your experience, experience like Richard. That. Definitely. So speaking of experience, Richard, you you have a um, an interesting background because you had experience in both the offensive cybersecurity landscape and the defensive cybersecurity landscape. So can you can you talk a little bit about how how your experience working on the offensive side has impacted or affects your approach to the defensive cybersecurity landscape? Yeah, so I think I think the offensive and defensive sides are, are so intimately related. It's like thinking about you know two sides of a piece of paper. They're really one. You can't peel one side off a piece of paper, at least not very effectively. And so I think that to play a good defense, you have to have mastered offense. I think we were chatting earlier as we thought this through, and we were talking about chess. It would be like me saying I was a chess master, but I can only play the white side of the board. I'm not very good at playing black, or I'm I'm a master at black. I'm not really very good with my white opening systems. You have to be good at both to really be rounded out. And this is a, I I use chess in an analogy because it's an adversarial game. And that's exactly the sort of wrestling around we do in the attacker space. Right. So I don't think you can truly be good at defense without understanding the ways of the attacker. And I don't think you can be a great attacker without having a good understanding of the pain that your attacks cause to defend defenders, because there are things I can do as an attacker that make certain defenses untenable, even if they're effective in the sense that they stop me from getting in, but I can make it so it's really hard to use. Maybe I make it noisy for you. Well, is it easier to play offense or is it easier to play defense? Well, that's definitely an easy question, yeah. So I'll say that I've never really lost playing offense. And <laughs> I'm sad to say that um, playing defender is 
is much harder. And we can talk about why, but it's definitely easier to be on the offensive Let's side. Let's talk about Look, why. Well, I mean, step one, it's more fun, right? Who doesn't like going on the offense? And, you know, it's that adrenaline rush when you, when you sort of manage to get, get your exploit past some of these defenses. But I think the other thing is that if you're a business, you have this very large attack surface, right? And all of it has to be secure. And it has to be secure all the time. So if you think about a pen test, a pen test might tell you that your attack surface at you know, 7.55 p.m. on a Tuesday in April is perfect, right? Can't get it. But an administrator spins up a box for testing or you miss patching something because a new vulnerability came out at 8 p.m. and suddenly you're vulnerable again. So as an attacker, I'm going to... I'm pretty good at finding vulnerabilities today, but if I don't find a vulnerability today that gets me into your system, I'll wait till tomorrow and I'll, net, I'll, I'll nail your system tomorrow. You have to be good 365 days a year, you know, 24 hours a day. I have to be good once and I can just wait for you to slip up. Do you, do the, do you guys do this, uh, you know, in your current role? Do you, do you play these games? Uh, you know, red team, blue team kind of thing? Yeah, we absolutely do. So so Praetorian as a, as a company is a mix of product offering and services offerings. And our services offerings, we absolutely do red and blue teaming with some pretty large customers. Um, one of the things that people don't take advantage of enough is a purple team, right? Which, which makes it less adversarial. So the thing with the red team is we're coming in, we're going to root your network. That's fun, and there, there is value for the customer. But what's really, but it's very adversarial, right? You're you're trying to catch me, I'm trying to win. What's really fun is a purple team where we're working both sides of the line. We're working with the blue team to see if we can see it, and we're working as a red team to see if we can get it. And that's a little bit more of a collaborative game. And so there's a lot of opportunity for knowledge transfer and learning to our customers. So it's not just about can we get in because we pretty much always do. It's about, did you see it? And how can you improve your defenses so that when you're breached that way next time, you do better? And I think purple teams are actually underutilized in the industry. And they, they do move away from this adversarial game to more of a collaborative game. And I think they're more fun in some ways too. And they would have you, better business value. Would you say that the purple team is where your own employees would fall. Like you've got your unintentional insider, you've got your admin that spins up some server that you didn't even know was coming and creates this vulnerability. So is that like, just as you're describing, I haven't heard the term purple team, but as you're talking about it, it made me think that's where we live as employees. Is that a fair statement? Kind of. I mean, I think there's a lot of unintentional harm that that we do as employees, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of well-intentioned moves lead to um, security risks. But a, a purple team is more about, it's, it's sort of when you blend, obviously, from the name, a red team where you've got a group of people who's trying to get in, and a blue team, a group of people who's trying to stop you from getting in, where you blend those. So it's more about did you see the attack? It's about improving the defenses and the resilience of the system mm. as much as it is about breaching the system. So, so Richard, you've seen, you've seen this kind of play out across government agencies and yep. commercial industry. 
who's better at it, commercial or government? So I think it's really hard to lump any large group of people into a, into buckets, right? So every business is, is, he, is, he just he just went right down the middle. He went purple. <laughs> he went Karen, purple. He went purple. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think they have very different challenges for a start, right? But I think I think businesses range from really very very good to really very very bad, um, and you know there are some targets that that come across our bow when we're on the offensive side of the world, where we're like, oh, that's a really hard target. These these folks really know their onions. They really know what they're doing. We're going to have to pull out our A game to find a win. And there are other companies where it's like shooting fish in a barrel where the barrel is big and only contains fish. Now, the government is different. The government, especially when we're talking about the federal government, it's it's, it's shocking to say this. It's a little bit more organized because there are certain standards that they're required to adhere to, right? So, so there's more sort of governance. Now, there are still different levels within the government, and especially when you get into state government and sort of governmental agencies that have complicated missions. NASA would be a good one if we want to chat about that because they have some very interesting mission requirements. Um, but uh, net net, I'd say in some ways, the government is a little bit more homogenous at the top end. Some of our intelligence agencies, they have pretty solid security. Um, and the fact that you can legislate and you can enforce does, does make some of that a little bit easier. The flip side is that it's very difficult for the government to compete on salary with a top salary in industry. So there's a, a sort of constant sucking sound from the business side of the house, pulling top talent away from the government. So they definitely have challenges around staffing. Well, you talked about staffing. This is the, like the second time you brought up people as, as a challenge. Um, can you Can you talk a little bit about that? what you've seen, how, how maybe it can be addressed or how you've done that in the past? Yeah, I think there's only, so, so let's define the problem. Cybersecurity people are, are really expensive and they're hard to come by and they're hard to um, retain, right? If I was a mercenary, I could flip my job every 12 months and probably have a very nice raise sort of built into my, into my paycheck. And that's a problem. There's only two ways to solve for that. You either need to get more people or you need to use technology to get better productivity out of the people that you have. And the right thing to do, of course, is both. You need to, you need to take that sort of left hand and that right hand approach. And I think there's some interesting things that we can do in both that will dramatically improve the outcomes that we get as an industry. Going back to being a defender, you know me, Richard. I like, I like you to just tell me like how we fix this. So give me the McDonald's version, like top three things that government industry can do for some quick wins as defenders. So I think I think that that it all starts with a really honest assessment of where you are in your mm -hmm. maturity. Right. So there's no one size fits all. For for some especially in the business world, you know, there are small companies who don't have endpoint protection, you know, that, or they're, 
they're you know not following anything that's remotely like best practice with understanding even where they are. They haven't even asked the question of what is my cyber maturity. So I think all these discussions start with a good measure of of where are you on that curve because where you are where you are defines what you should do. With that said, um, I think that you know most businesses get breached because of software rot. That's that's something's hanging out there and it's unpatched and you don't even know you have it. So managing your attack surface is incredibly important. I think moving to things like single sign-on and multi-factor is incredibly important. And I think having a robust set of defenses around phishing, which is the sort of easiest common way in uh, to Still number one way, right? Yeah. Like- Still today, it is the number one way that, uh, what am I trying to say? Attackers get in. (laughs) Yes. I mean, because people are people and computers can be quite difficult to break, but getting somebody to send me 500 Steam gift cards because I texted them can be quite easy, right? Especially if you take your time in target selection. And And, you know, from a mathematical standpoint, if you think about it like game, there's no cost of predation. If I text every one of your employees saying, hey, this is Nathan, the CEO. Can you can you call me back? I want, to, I want you to buy some gift cards for a surprise for accounting. And boy, will accounting be surprised. Um, you know, all you take is one, all it takes is one person to go, oh, it's the CEO. I'm so excited about yeah. that. Yeah. No, um, I just had this conversation with my mom this morning. I said, mom, there are people preying on our, our need to help with Ukraine right now. And you're going to get asked for money from people who are bad people and who are stealing it and are not. And but we we're in this state of emergency right now where we all feel like we need to help. So we forget this good hygiene of, you know, don't respond to that. Yeah, exactly. So that's this. That's why, you know, I would say things like single sign on a multi-factor go hand in hand with fishing. Because they can reduce some of the risk of being successful. Okay, fish, but right? help me with single sign-on again. Like I know it's good, and it all every time it gets brought up, I think. But if all my passwords are in one, like if they hack the single sign-on, then I'm really screwed. So tell yes. me why it's more secure. <laughs> so, so as as I like to remind customers, you know, one ring to rule them all did not work out very well for Sauron in in Lord of the Rings, right? So yes, you have a single point that's scary. And if we wind back to the news cycle, we just had a little bit of an Okta scare, right? Which was a really interesting story. I mean, it was was a third party um, issue. It wasn't core Okta, but it was still pretty scary. And it made people think a lot about the value of single sign-on. But what you're doing is you're trading one set of risks for another set of risks, right? So the question is, if you don't have single sign-on, you probably have either password reuse run rampant, Mm -hmm. or you have um, people getting breached um, because they gave up their username and password because they're not using multi-factor. So so with single sign-on, yes, you're putting your eggs in one basket, but then you need to watch that basket really carefully. Mm -hmm. Oh, the multi-factor thing, that's key, right? Yes, multi-factor is is, yeah. is really important nowadays. I mean, we've all been sort of speculating about the death the, the death of the password for for years, 
And, you know, one day that prediction in, in a threat report is going to come true. And we're finally going to get rid of get rid of usernames and passwords and, and do something that's a little bit more sophisticated. But I, th the reality is, I think it, I think we're stuck with it for a while. But um, yeah, multi-factor is a way to buy down risk around account account breach. Doesn't buy down all risk because if I can fish you and get you to run something inside your browser, I'm you. I, I can assume your roles and I can do all kinds of of horrible things to you. And and that's actually one of the techniques that we use a lot um, in our red teaming is we'll we'll get a browser implant and we bounce through the browser to do amazing and ultimately very scary things. And so it's important that you don't treat that as, as the whole story, that you treat that as a layer of protection. So if I think to your earlier question, yes, you're moving your risk into, into this one basket. So you watch the basket really hard and you have some additional lines of defense around it. So for example, I don't usually single sign on and then just log into our accounting system and start trying to move money around. If you look at me behaviorally, I'm going to log in, I'm going to make certain slacks connected, I'm going to go email. If if I just log in and immediately start hitting up accounting, that, that's suspicious. And I think you and I both have a background in understanding inside a threat and behavioral analytics. There's a lot of things that you can do to buy down the risk. So, so Richard, <clears throat> over the course of your career, do you have a couple of success stories that stick out in your mind? So, so I, I do. I mean, I think success, success stories are funny, right? Because I think the only way the industry's really been successful is financially. I think investing in cybersecurity stocks 15 years ago, you'd be a, a very wealthy person. But from an investment in terms of ROI for businesses, I feel like it's one of the worst investments ever, right? Because we're still <laughs> dealing with malware and ransomware. I mean, the first... One of the first things that I remember in very early cybersecurity days was essentially ransomware, and it's still a major problem today. Yeah. So I question how much progress we've made as an industry. But I'll give you a couple of success stories. I think back to my days as faculty at, at Florida Institute of Technology, and, and one of my favorite success stories was um, some of my students who came in with mid-career just with absolute drive and determination to become members of the cybersecurity community. And I'm thinking about two specific students who, who I admitted them to the program, even though they were lacking a lot of the technical skills that, that we needed. And I sat them down and I talked to them and said, look, student X, this is going to be a really heavy lift. You're starting from the start line. Everybody's halfway through the race, but you've proven in your life that that you understand how to how to approach a challenge. Let's do it. And I'm proud of both those students to say that they're both very successful in the in the industry today. They had a very tough first year, and then they just went from strength to strength to strength. And so I think of success stories around people because I basically love people, right? I think that's what life's about. And so when I think about cyber, I think about the fact that nothing is impossible, not if you really try. And if you're prepared to, to really roll up your sleeves, you can retrain from being pretty much anything. Neither of these two students had a technical background and become top level analysts in, in five to 10 years. It's just a heavy lift. So, so there are success, success stories about that. And I think there's also success stories, you know, within the industry. I think within the industry, 
we we listen. We listen to our customers, or at least some of us listen. We could all do with listening more. Um, and we're trying to deal with actual customer pain. I think as an industry, we're moving away from the whole, you got to patch every vulnerability. you got to patch every weak thing. And we're starting to say, you've got to do what matters most to manage your risk. So this one success story is moving from fix it all to a much more risk-based sort of approach. And I think those, those two things are, are success stories. We see that in CISA, right? So I know a lot of your listeners will understand a lot more about the government side of the world. CISA is really good at, at saying these vulnerabilities are actively being exploited in the field right now. You have to do these things first. And CISA publishes a list they keep up to date on a weekly basis of actively exploited vulnerabilities in the field. And if all you did was make certain that you were locking those things down, you'd have a decent a decent sort of response to the threat. And this shift from do it all to do what matters most is, is I think, a, a success story that I'm pretty, pretty happy about. Well, and I love the just the practical steps that you gave before. I called them my McDonald's, you know, menu here. But I think one of the keys is, well, or or you said the first thing is to do an honest assessment. And I think yes. that that's something that has to be like ongoing. It's not one and done. You're always checking your environment. And so you understand what you have because it's constantly changing to your point at the very beginning of the show. That's right. So, so that sort of nicely bookends some of the opening conversation we had, right? Change is, is a killer pressure. And it causes burnout back to people. So constantly managing your attack surface is critical. And, and Gartner and Forrester and all the analysts are continually now talking about attack surface management or external attack surface management as, as we think about it, which is how your network looks from the outside in. And I think every business, especially those that operate in the cloud, because things can change so quickly in the cloud, it's, it's like five commands and I've spun up a whole new service should be taking advantage of attack surface management solutions. I think it's a critical blind spot. If you look at the surveys, most, most customers will admit that they don't really know what their attack surface even looks like. And if you don't know what it looks like, you can't possibly secure it. So as I would say to a customer, did you know you had it? Can we exploit it? If we exploited it, did, we, did you see it? That's back to the purple team idea. And then if you saw it, how can we prevent it from happening again? And I think if you, again, it's a maturity curve, right? You're starting at the bottom. Do you know what you have? All the way through to building in resilience and robustness to the network. And I'm excited about, about sort of seeing that sort of uptake in the industry. That's a space that's pretty hot right now. It's uh, because I think it provides a tremendous return on investment for, for both government and business. Everybody needs to understand their attack surface. And that's something that's eminently automatable. So that helps you deal with the shortfall of people that you suffer with. Is AI part of it, of an attack surface management solution? It, it certainly should be. I mean, like, like every good scientist, I grip my teeth a little bit every time I have to say AI because I think that doesn't really represent where we are as an industry. But machine learning uh, and deep learning, they're absolutely part of it, yes. So one of the things that we, we recently launched was a, a, 
uh, machine learning powered, or I think our press as AI powered, but it's actually deep learning, a deep learning based secret scanner that looks for, for secrets in, in source code or secrets in files that are out there on the web or secrets and things that we Secrets like out. bad stuff? Secrets, secrets? like uh, credentials. So, oh. so here's a classic example. If you have a, um, a WordPress site, one of the things that you likely do is you, you make a backup of the configuration. And often you'll call that configuration file something different, right? Well, it's a backup. So you might call it .backup. If I get that file, your web server is going to serve it because it's not a restricted um, extension. And now I've probably got your database username and password. And so this is a tool that will sort of trawl your source code repositories, your, your container repositories, your websites for secrets and alert you that you've breached it. A secret it could be an AWS key. That, that, mm. There's a lot of secrets that do the rounds. In so identifying of, that attack surface management and helping you lock it down. Yes, exactly right. And approaching it like you would as an attacker, because mm -hmm. that's where a lot of your biggest risk is. Mm -hmm. All right, we're coming up on time, Mark. Do you have one last question for Richard before we go to our talk, tech talk? Um. Well, this is probably the most controversial question you're going to get on this whole uh, conversation. I'm nervous. Star Trek or Star Wars? So as, as a man banned from almost every Second Life Star Trek sim, um, long story, um, at least I was back in the day when Second Life was a thing, I have to say that I am a Star Oh, it's a tough one. They're both great. Uh, I'd say uh, Firefly and Serenity, actually. I, I'd say he's, going blue team. he's going purple team again. He's going, going purple. purple team. Totally purple um, team. <laughs> totally a brown coat at heart, right? But um, I'm going to go with Star Trek. Sorry. It was, it's the thing of my youth. I, I grew up watching Captain Kirk, and, yep. I, and I love and how it evolved the show. I don't even think that's a real question, Mark. That's bullshit. We don't have to choose. <laughs> I still like Austin C, though. I'm a huge Firefly fan. Well, he, he, oh, mentioned, he mentioned Lord of the Rings earlier, and so I, yeah. I, I, it got me thinking, you know, I had to ask that question. All right, so uh -huh. we're going to jump into Tech Talk, and my first question is just completely curated for you. Have you ever, you're a flautist, did I say that right? Something to do between uh, between calls. <laughs> Have you ever played like the Cantina Band? You know, um, I've done a lot of bar work in my days when I was a sax player. And in fact, I used to have something called an electric wind instrument. You said saxophone player, right? Yes, a sax yes, yes, player. Saxophone. Okay. Yeah. Um, I used to have something called an electric wind instrument, which looks and sounds a lot like the thing from the Cantina Band. It's it's an it's sort of an electric saxophone. Ooh. So yeah, I've pretty much done all that kind of crazy stuff in the day. Played some really sketchy uh, pubs and clubs in England when I and was. And can we up. find this online so I can close our show out with it? Uh, there is a very short clip of me playing. Uh, and it is actually me playing as well as in the shot in a in a British uh, movie um, called, called The Clothes in the Wardrobe. Uh, one of the bands I worked with did some of the background music for it. And if you search for it, you will find a very young version of me 
playing um, saxophone and the Cafe des Artistes in the background. And it's actually me playing the saxophone solo. That, oh, that I'm, so, I'm that. searching for it. You know, oh, I we're am. definitely closing the show out with that. <laughs> there you go. All right, Mark, you get the next Tech Talk question. <laughs> well, so Richard, so what do you think the next big leap in technology is going to be? Gosh, that's a hard question. Um, you mean uh, security technologies or just technology in general? Technology in general, just wide open space. I think, I think, you know, mRNA, CRISPR, the whole mm. sort of gene thing has, has really good, um, opportunity and a lot of interesting pitfalls too. So I think about transformational technologies. I think, you know, I think about the progress that I think we have at our fingertips around vaccinations, around curing certain diseases, around technologies like CRISPR. So I think we're starting to view ourselves more as software than hardware now. And I think that science over the next 20 years will, will continue to make amazing strides. If you want something that's so, what we call more hardcore tech, quantum computing will be an absolute game changer. Um, and, and how that will play out will be good and bad because it's gonna break a lot of crypto solutions and it's gonna take us a lot of time to get off those old crypto algorithms onto things that are quantum resistant. That's, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. All right, I need something new to read. So give me your reading list for our last question, Richard. And it actually doesn't have to be reading. It can be listening, podcast, TV. Like, what are you doing? What are you uh, watching or listening to to get inspired or just for fun? Mostly so for fun. It, it's absolutely hysterical that you're asking this question because uh, you didn't give me any of these questions in advance. And I have a flute <laughs> right next to me. So I'm like, oh, I'm a flute player. Here's my flute. I actually have a book right next to me, too. Oh, look um, at you. <laughs> and, and this is for fun, not for um, not for work. It is this book, Sources and Shapes. Is which it a cookbook? Is, it is a cookbook. It was a James Beard award-winning book on Italian food. So as I can't travel, when I was working at, at my last job, I did almost a quarter of a million miles a year by air. Haven't traveled a mile by air in over two years. So I really miss being out in the world. And so one of the things I've been trying to do over the last, I don't know, year is really master proper Italian cooking. So I've been spending a lot of time actually studying. Um, I've also got down here the Marcella Hazan's book, you know, the, the classic Italian cookbook, right? Which, uh, which are very different from the sort of Italian American food that that I've I'm more accustomed to. So it's been fascinating learning about how to cook Italian properly, and it's opened my eyes about quality ingredients. So that's we're gonna have to get those books, Carolyn. I love it. Nobody's ever given us a cookbook. There you go. No. You have not disappointed. You have played <laughs> cantina band music, and you are reading cookbooks. <laughs> So, well, thank you so much, Richard, for taking time today and sharing your insight on cybersecurity and Italian food and Star Trek versus Star Wars. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's It's been so nice to reconnect. Yes, Great to see you again, Richard. <laughs>
Yeah. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can um, visit our sponsors page, Dynatrace at dynatrace.com to learn more about how you can digitally transform faster, smarter, and easier. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a review and make sure you share. And we will see you next week on Tech Transforms. Tech Transforms.